Hello, I'm Berta Twisselman, and I'm the obituaries and editorials editor for the BMJ. Our latest head-to-head debate asks, is continuous electronic fetal monitoring useful for all women in labour? I'm joined by the authors of the head-to-head. Peter Brocklehurst is Professor of Women's Health at the University of Birmingham. He argues that continuous electronic fetal monitoring during labour can lead to harm and increase the risk of caesarean section. Christoph Lees is reader in obstetrics and fetal medicine at Imperial College London. He argues that continuous electronic fetal monitoring is useful for all women in labour as it helps prevent much neonatal morbidity. This topic is among the most controversial and problematic in obstetrics. Um, Peter, can you talk us through why this is the case? Um, I think in the context of a UK population, the risk of something going catastrophically wrong in labour is very small. So the challenge we have is to uh, be certain that whatever we do during labour actually improves outcome. So if we're looking at, for example, uh, neonatal death, then fortunately very few babies die uh, in the UK. And the number of deaths which may be due to events happening in labour is also very small. So when we're trying to assess whether whatever we do makes a difference, um, we struggle because of the very small numbers involved. Right. Christoph, you talk about preventing morbidity. Why do you think this topic is so controversial? Yes. Uh, Well, I think it's one of those unresolved controversies that over the last 30 years has raised its head time and time again. And it has because the big studies on CTG, on electronic fetal monitoring, have generally shown no evidence that it reduces mortality um, or cerebral palsy, uh, as Peter has previously pointed out. But the issue is that it halves, roughly halves, or slightly more than halves, uh, the incidence of neonatal fits. And most neonatal fits, most fits in healthy babies, otherwise healthy babies, Uh, born at term, are because they're short of oxygen. They're called hypoxic fits. And it's only in the last few years that the link between hypoxic fits and uh, poor neurodevelopmental outcome at uh, later childhood and uh, school age has been noted. And this is a very profound link between neonatal fits and poor school age performance. So I think we've been looking at the wrong things previously. We've been, it's not that death isn't important, it's hugely important, but it's very rare. Uh, And cerebral palsy similarly is very rare. And most cerebral palsy is due to uh, things that don't happen at around the time of labor. All right, that's interesting. So you both talk about the balance of harm and benefit, but you arrive at opposite conclusions. Uh, Christoph, what's the compelling argument to extend the use of this screening tool to all women in labor? What's the benefit that outweighs the risks? Sorry. Yeah, the the benefit is, uh, depending on exactly how you model uh, the risk reduction of uh, introducing continuous electronic fetal monitoring, the likelihood is that uh, many hundred babies would not have hypoxic fits. And then uh, that would not lead to the decrement in school age performance and neurodevelopment. Now, it is true that if you were to introduce continuous electronic fetal monitoring to all women, that the caesarean section rate, the intervention rate, would have to rise because the intervention is your cure, if you like, to an abnormal CTG. And we know that CTGs 
have a high uh, false positive rate. So yes, certainly there would be a rise in cesarean section and operative, emergency operative vaginal delivery. But here is the crucial point. That rise would really be very modest. And we know that from a huge American study from a few years ago by Chen et al, uh, where over a million women were uh, actually had uh, continuous monitoring or didn't have monitoring. And in, the, in those that had continuous monitoring, the cesarean section rate was a, a couple of percentage points higher uh, than those that didn't have electronic fecal monitoring. Now, of course, it's not a randomized controlled trial, but it's pretty good evidence because there's so many other reasons women have cesarean section, pretty good evidence that the proportion of cesarean sections that are due to acute fetal distress in labor is not very large and such uh, an intervention, i.e. continuous electronic monitoring, would not make uh, a, a dramatic difference on the cesarean section rate. And ultimately, why are we here? We are here to deliver healthy babies to healthy women. And, and if we don't do that, then we're failing. Right. Peter, what is your argument against using fetal monitoring, even as much as we currently do, uh, never mind extending it? So I don't, I don't dispute the fact that the current evidence suggests that there's a difference in neonatal seizures between mm -hmm. the two groups. Mm -hmm. There is a difference. The risk of neonatal seizures is very, very low. And the one, trial, the one randomized trial that did have a difference in neonatal seizures followed the babies up to see whether they had cerebral palsy. And in fact, there was a slight excess, but which was not statistically significant, in the continuous monitored group, not the intermittent auscultation group. So Christoph is talking about the natural history of neonatal seizures. The neonatal seizures, in, of all neonatal seizures, and we know that probably about a half of babies with neonatal seizures have no detectable long-term adverse sequelae. So we are talking about very, very small numbers that potentially could be prevented uh, in terms of adverse outcomes. What we do know, and I think it's interesting that Christopher referred to that American, that American study, which is an observational study of 1.7 million births mm -hmm. using routine data where 89% of the women got continuous monitoring. And there was no ability in, the, in that data to be able to look at the risk status of women, whether they were monitored or not monitored. And the fact that they only found a very small increase in cesarean section when all the randomized controlled trials have shown a high increase in risk of cesarean section, I think demonstrates how weak that observational study design is because it can't control for risk. Right. Uh, and I think that actually illustrates the point that that is an unreliable study on which to make assumptions about its impact on perinatal mortality or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And this increase in cesarean section is absolutely essential. We know that previous cesarean section uh, is a major risk factor for very rare but very serious uh, outcomes such as uterine rupture or morbidly adherent placenta where there is a substantial um, risk of the baby dying or even the mother dying. So although that seems very rare, we know that cesarean section, particularly performed in labor, has a long-term consequence for women. I think as obstetricians, we often view the pregnancy that's in front of us as, a, as an event in itself. But obviously, making decisions like cesarean section has implications for subsequent pregnancies, and we often ignore that. So I think we've got clear evidence that increasing cesarean section is harmful, mm -hmm. 
will harm in some women and will lead to death in subsequent pregnancies of babies. And we've got no evidence that it makes a difference to death or major morbidity in any but possibly a very small minority. So I, to me, the, be- the benefit of, of harm versus risk is the other way around. There's more harm than risk, uh, than benefit. But also, we already selectively use electronic fetal monitoring in the UK. Um, and we don't really take account of the level of risk individual women have. So we divide women into low risk and high risk and say that if you're high risk, we should have continuous electronic fetal monitoring. But within that high risk group, there are probably some groups which have particularly high risk and others, which we don't know, may have a risk very little different from those of low risk. And of course, the screening test, which is what continuous electronic fetal monitoring is, performs better, has lower false positives, the higher the risk of the outcome. And I still don't think we know enough about the risk stratification of women in labor to know when to use continuous electronic fetal monitoring. So my interpretation of the evidence is that we should use it even less than we currently do in the UK, and certainly not more, because we'll accrue negligible benefit, but we'll certainly accrue increasing harms. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Christoph? Can I, can I of course. come in there? I, yes. I think that uh, Peter advances some very good arguments, uh, none of which uh, none of which is incorrect at all. What what I think is really important though is this concept of risk. Now, um, the paradox here is, and we know this from a big study from Utrecht uh, about five years ago, reported in the BMJ. Uh, if women are assigned to low risk care in the Netherlands, the perinatal mortality is twice that of those women assigned to high-risk care. The major difference in those two pathways is continuous electronic fetal monitoring as opposed to intermittent monitoring, which in the Netherlands is is carried out on the baby much less frequently, or rather the interval between uh, intermittent monitoring uh, is is much um, longer than, than in the UK. So this is very, very powerful evidence that if you are monitoring and you are looking at someone and a particular particular condition, and in this case, labor and late pregnancy, then uh, you, you can intervene with delivery. And that intervention, even in the women who are expected to have the worst outcomes, paradoxically means the outcomes are better. And this is, uh, this is very central to this discussion that you can only assign low risk and high risk to women in retrospect. You can't do it prospectively. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I I don't disagree with that paper, but Christoph will also know that using the the same data set in the Netherlands, another group showed that uh, low-risk care at home, which is where the Netherlands maternity system differs from most other countries in that they have a, a very high planned home birth rate. Another paper using the same data set showed no evidence of an increased risk of mortality associated with midwifery care at home compared with high-risk care in hospital. And the challenge with both of those studies is that they're observational. And the risk of bias is substantial and the risk of confounding, particularly confounding by indication, is really high. So yes, that dramatic paper in the BMJ showed a difference, but another paper using the same data has shown no increase in difference. And we know that observational studies can be very actively misleading. So I've, uh, I've certainly looked at both of the papers. 
the issue around misclassification uh, and misclassification of outcome and completeness of outcome in the routine data in the Netherlands is not good. So I, I think that we don't have any evidence, strong evidence from the Netherlands that there's a difference in perinatal mortality by risk status. We certainly don't know that it's a difference of electronic fetal monitoring. So I think we just, we just need to be careful. We've got randomized trials of 37,000 women uh, from a variety of different settings in the Cochrane Review about electronic fetal monitoring versus intermittent auscultation, which show no difference in mortality. Uh, if the issue is about interpretation of the CTG, we've just completed a trial of 46,000 women, which was published earlier this year, showing that computer-assisted interpretation of the CTG made no difference to outcome, um, any outcomes for the babies or the women. Um, so I think we're we're really now trying to scrape together what evidence there is and come up with a sensible conclusion. And, and my, sense, my conclusion from that is that we are intervening too much in, in what, is, what will be normal labours for the vast majority of women and that the benefits are, are not really there. Yeah. Well, Peter, you were, of course, uh, one of the lead authors, and I think principal investigator for the birthplace study. And, yeah. you know, that did show that nulliparous women um, assigned to low-risk care or delivering at home had twice the perinatal mortality, did it not, um, no, uh, compared to if they're in, if they're in the hospital? In I, I no, thought nulliparous... 5,000 women in that, and there was no excess of perinatal deaths. There was an excess of a composite perinatal morbidity index, uh, which included, um, which majority of which was meconium aspiration uh, and um, neonatal encephalopathy, mild neonatal well, encephalopathy predominantly. Uh, you see, I think isn't isn't that the point that meconium aspiration and neonatal encephalopathy are very potentially very important outcomes meconium aspiration uh, can mean that a baby is on ECMO ventilation and m whatever we call mild neonatal encephalopathy can still have significant consequences um, later later on for development God. so so I, I don't disagree with that but in the birthplace study none of the meconium aspiration needed uh, anything more than um, short-term neonatal care uh, and the neonatal encephalopathy, were, there were very few instances of cooling, and that was not significantly the difference between the two groups. So I, yeah. think, um, I think we're rather plagued by the... And that's an observational study. We did our very best to control for confounding and bias, but we don't know that the women um, planning to give birth in different settings were different in ways that we couldn't measure. So there's always that challenge with observational studies, and the randomized trials are, lar are rarely large enough to be able to look at these rare but uh, but obviously seriously important outcomes. Yeah, but if we look at something that we both agree with, that neonatal fits, if we go back to our starting discussion, that neonatal fits are reduced in women with continuous electronic fetal monitoring, um, what uh, you, you said that over 50% of women with, uh, what, sorry, 50% of babies um, go on to have perfectly normal outcomes, but actually if you look at the IQ distributions of these babies, it is absolutely shifted to the left. So although some of these babies may be functioning in the normal range, they have quite possibly uh, suffered a decrement in their developmental uh, outcomes. So I think, would you not agree that we must attach more importance to neonatal hypoxia, neonatal encephalopathic uh, 
Sequili because up until very recently, and really up until the discussion we're having today, you talk to midwives and doctors and talk about the impact of fits and people shrug their shoulders and say, well, what's that? It's a fit that happens in the first few days, baby goes home and the baby's fine. There is not an understanding that this can have potentially major consequences. My suggestion is, and I take on board your point of um, in, inappropriate intervention in labor, why can't we let women choose? I think NICE already allows them to, or not allows them, but suggests that they should be allowed to have continuous electronic fetal monitoring if they want. Uh, well, what's wrong with that? I don't have a problem with that, but obviously women will choose based on the information that they're provided with about the risks and benefits and how to, we as two professionals in the, in the, in the field don't necessarily agree about the interpretation of the data. How are, how are women most, supposed to make sense of this very conflicting information? Um, I, well, I don't know. I think it's a struggle. If we can't, within a community of, of health professionals uh, and academics, agree what the, the best course of action is likely to be, then, then how can women? And I think, it, I think that's really difficult. But just let me come back to this issue about seizures. So the follow-up of children with seizures follows up all babies born with all babies with seizures. We don't know the distribution of severity of seizures in those that have hypoxic seizures versus all of those babies who have seizures in the neonatal unit. And in, in current contemporary practice, a lot of neonatal seizures may be due to um, neonatal stroke. That's an increasing component of the neonatal seizure landscape. Now, that will not be increased by uh, one group versus another in terms of electronic fetal monitoring versus intermittent auscultation. But we can't make an assumption that the neonatal seizures in the existing trials evidence are the same as all neonatal seizures that happen in the neonatal unit. Um, and it may well be that there are differences in that severity. And the milder the seizures, so, you know, Neil Marlow has done plenty of follow-up of uh, babies with seizures, and in the very mild encephalopathic group, uh, who, many of whom don't have seizures, has not been able to demonstrate any difference in long-term outcome in terms of IQ or neurodevelopmental benefit. Yeah. And I think well, we do uh, have yeah, to have that bigger discussion about the, yeah. the long-term consequences, because if by our uh, actions we increase cesarean section, which increases subsequent perinatal mortality, we may be trading off subsequent baby deaths for potentially theoretical benefits in, in relation to IQ distributions. And I think that's a okay. really important issue. Well, uh, I think that there's a slight mixing of two things here. I think neonatal, very mild neonatal encephalopathy isn't 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 a fit is it it's jitteriness it's it's other things uh and we're really talking about neonatal fits i'm talking about neonatal hypoxic fits and that that is a different you know that is a very hard diagnosis um and if we come back to the mother's choice i think it is it is incontrovertible both you and i are agreeing that continuous electronic fetal monitoring reduces that risk. Now, if that risk is 2.5 in a thousand or 1.5 in a thousand, that may be a risk that a woman doesn't want to take. We are, we do give advice where doctors don't agree. The whole discussion about elective cesarean section for maternal request is, is riven with inconsistencies and difficulties. And ultimately, we often do say to the woman, 
you have a choice here. You decide, and they will decide based on their preferences. Now, I don't understand why we can't, however imperfect the information is, we can't impart that knowledge that certainly isn't imparted at the moment to women before they choose what type of monitoring they have. That was a very interesting discussion. Um, where do you see this going? You know, what is the future going to hold? Uh, the standard cop-out to this question is to say, well, we need a randomized controlled trial. But for all the reasons that we've outlined and discussed, I think an RCT would be extremely difficult to do. I, I think the first point I'd make is that we have to give... The, the information, however imperfect it is, we have to impart the information uh, to women and, and allow them to decide. And secondly, we do need to test this hypothesis, and we could test this hypothesis not through a randomized controlled trial uh, format, uh, but by allowing women to, to make the choice. And, and there are ways of controlling for baseline characteristics. It's not perfect, but given that we're very unlikely to see a uh, randomized controlled trial, it is perfectly possible that we could get very useful data uh, from the 700,000 women who deliver in England and Wales every year within a relatively short space of time. And I'm going to nominate Peter to be the chief investigator of that study, yeah. and I'll help him. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're asking me about what, what I think the future is, I think we, um, we have to acknowledge that elect continuous electronic fetal monitoring performs terribly as a screening test. And yet we seem to invest more, not more and more time, but we've invested a lot of time and effort into trying to get it to perform better. And I think we're at the stage of saying it's a terrible test. We need to come up with an alternative mm -hmm. and we need to we need to put our focus elsewhere in a way which more accurately identifies fetuses who are at risk of hypoxic damage during labor. And I think there, there must be ways of doing that. I'm not an expert in this field in terms of the engineering or the, the physiological understanding of hypoxia and its signals. <coughs> but, but measuring the fetal heart rate, which is not much more sophisticated than taking a pulse, is surely not the best way of doing this. So what will happen in the immediate future, I don't know. It will depend on on how uh, people like NICE evaluate the current evidence and make recommendations and professional bodies make recommendations. But but I really think we need to urgently look for alternatives because it's, it's, it's clear that babies in both arms of the trial, and even when you use electronic fetal monitoring, are born with severe, sometimes very severe hypoxic damage. And we we should be trying to stop that. Uh, and I think we need alternative ways of doing that. Okay. I, I would say to you, Peter, that CTG is by no means perfect, uh, but it's extremely rare to have a baby that is hypoxic uh, that has a completely normal CTG. It is, of course, much commoner for a baby to have an abnormal CTG and to be completely normal. That is true. The false positives uh, are are high but what are we trying to achieve we're we're achieving healthy babies of course with uh, the, with the downside of doing unnecessary cesarean sections but in any with any test any screening test you have a number needed to treat and any intervention uh, and here uh, i would argue that that actually the ctg is pretty good and if only we thought more carefully about it and used it properly 
uh, we would be able to interpret it better and we would be able to intervene and we would almost certainly be able to reduce the number of neonatal hypoxic uh, FIPS that we see. I mean, I think the, the American study that you referred to, the big one of the 1.7 million births, um, I think that paper is very flawed because it can't control for most of the confounding which is necessary and there's potential biases. But even they concluded that the number needed to treat was 11,000 to prevent one possible uh, neonatal um, death. Well, that, um, that was a mortality, wasn't it? And I think that mortality, was mortality. Uh, you're right, yes, yes. So it um, is very, very uncommon. And that's the, that's the challenge we all have. Um, and yet the impact on the impact on the false positives there, and I keep coming back to this because I think we keep, we keep ignoring it, is the long-term consequences of doing all of these unnecessary infections. They will lead to babies dying. And we've got very little evidence that we prevent babies dying. And how many deaths are we prepared to trade off against how many babies that might have a difference in their IQ? And I suspect if we provide them with information which says, you know, we might prevent some babies having a slightly lower IQ, but we are going to cause more deaths. You know, it depends very much how the information is, is, put, is put forward. And, and I we can't ignore the long-term consequences of our actions. And I think, no, I think I, we I, tend I, to. Yeah, uh, we, we must be measured in this. You're, you're quite right. But the incidence of baby death attributable to a previous cesarean section is an order of magnitude lower than the risk of a neonatal seizure, isn't it? Yeah. So, so then how many, how many neonatal seizures would you trade off for a death prevented? Well, that, that's something that very, would need very to be established discussion. in a cost, you know, it's, it's possible to do cost-benefit analysis. But let's go back to the American paper because it did show something very interesting that is slightly outside the remit of this discussion. But the value of CTG in, in um, preventing uh, death, neonatal death, was disproportionately high at lower gestations. So the earlier you did a CTG, the more useful it was in preventing uh, mortality. Uh, and that was a dose-dependent effect. So the more preterm you got, the more effective it was. And that's an absolutely fascinating finding because, of course, very large numbers of babies are born at 32, 33, 34, 35 weeks. Uh, and some are born, of course, at 25 or 26 weeks. And this really doesn't this tell us that uh, the CTG does work, and it works particularly well, um, particularly well in the highest risk babies. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but we're running out of time. It's been incredibly interesting. If I could just invite you to give your closing statements. I, I think Peter's made some very good points. I, I accept very much of what he's saying, but I think that... The focus of this cannot be what we've talked about in the last 30 years, which is cerebral palsy and mortality. I think the risk of babies dying or mothers dying from cesarean sections is much, much lower uh, than the risk of a baby ending up with a neonatal fit. And that is something that can effectively be reduced by continuous electronic fetal monitoring. I think the balance is in favour of continuous electronic fetal monitoring. Thank you. Peter? Um, in my view, I think that I'm not suggesting that we abandon electronic fetal monitoring. Uh, all I'm suggesting is that uh, we restrict its use as much as we can into those groups of women who are at the highest risk. 
so that the balance of benefits versus harms is, appears to be more equitable. And I think the more we start, the more women who have continuous electronic fetal monitoring, the more harm will do for, for less and less benefits. Um, so we, we will always, well, we will use fetal monitoring until we've got an alternative, uh, but I think we need to be very careful about who we use it in or who we recommend its use in. Thank you very much. I can now understand why it's a, a topic of such a controversy. Um, it's been very interesting to talk to you. Um, thank you for making the time. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Peter Brocklehurst and Christopher Lees in a debate on whether electronic fetal monitors should be used in all women in labour. Their head-to-head article is now available on bmj.com. That's all for this episode. We will be back soon with articles from the Christmas BMJ. So do subscribe to make sure you get yourself in the festive spirit. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Berta Twistleman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>